0: We're going to pray here in just a second and uh, climb into the Word. I want to tell you, though, kind of prepare you a little bit, this, every five years, it's been built into our uh, design as a church that the leadership, uh, elder-wise, would have a, a three-month sabbatical, and this last year in the summer and the fall, we broke it up into a month and a half and a month and a half, uh, really had a sweet time of of reflecting and studying and uh There are two sermons that I've been pining for to preach, or anxious, eager to preach, and this is the first of those. The second one is next week. And really, I would say that these two sermons, in some ways, are the product of those three months of rest and study and prayer and enjoying God. So pretty excited about it, a little emotional about it. I don't know if something means a lot to me. I have a hard time not um, really getting a little emotional like a uh, so I hope I can get through this it's good let me pray and we're going to climb into a special time together God first of all this morning I want to lift up another church in our community and I want to pray for another pastor I want to pray for Cavanaugh Methodist Church Lord I want to pray for Stephen Cotton uh, the pastor and minister of Cavanaugh Methodist Lord we have no insight, um, our really firsthand knowledge of how things are going at this church, but we trust that they are enjoying a triune God, a risen Lord, the same baptism, the same Holy Spirit, and that we are brothers and sisters in the faith and that we can cheer for your fame and your renown and your glory and your work in this church. So this is not a reactive prayer because there are any problems that we know of. It's just a proactive prayer, hoping for your glory there and through there. I pray for Stephen knowing uh, some of the weekly challenges or having a sense of some of the weekly challenges he must face as a pastor. I, I pray for his worship, that he right now is either preparing to preach or preaching already, and that it has been fueled by a time of real worship where he has been provided time to study where he has enjoyed you uh, through the pages of your word and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that that will just rain down and pour down on Kavanaugh Methodist Church and that you will uh, equip your people, that your people are worshiping and enjoying you. Thankful for the ministry of Kavanaugh and this community that has been there for a long time, and we pray for a long time to come in a time of health. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for Christian Hass. So thankful for thankful for the chance to talk with her yesterday, and to hear her talk, and to see both eyes—one eye especially involved, and one seeming more involved. Thankful to. Uh, to see her grasp Christie's hand and to see her move her feet. We're thankful for little tiny, little movements there and we pray that you would continue healing her. The worship at Crosspoint, as you well know, has been fueled in some ways or has been um, part of the worship in the last 10 years nearly. Um, Christian has been a voice in that worship and we pray that you would restore her to fellowship physically, knowing that she is fully restored right here with us, enjoying you. Pray that you would restore her body as a wife, as a mom, as a worshiper, as a friend and a sister. Lord, also, um, just wanna thank you this morning for the Hucks being here. What a sweet time in store. We just anticipate a really sweet three months with them. Thankful for the chance to, uh, to hear firsthand about the work and what you're doing. And Lord, we pray for them while they're here that they'll have a time of rest, that they'll have a time of um, fellowship and joy, and that they'll be in some ways refitted and refueled for their next time on the field when they return. And Lord, we pray for the work while they're gone. Pray that you would give Jake and Steph a real peace, that the work has been entrusted to you in the first place, and that you are the God of the work and that you are always busy and never idle. I pray that they'll be encouraged with that and they can have a time of really enjoying each other and enjoying their church family incarnate. Thankful for this message too, Lord. Thankful for how it's ministered to me. Um, I don't pray for um, a smooth delivery or a, um, a well-preached message. I just pray that the truths in this message will hit and change hearts and give this people even yet a newer and better view on life and the world and things that we encounter every day. I'm thankful for it in advance. In Christ's name we pray, amen. That dude back there is on. I don't know if we can kill that. This is working this week, though, which is really cool. I'm pretty excited about that. It's a blessing. I have a Frederick Remington, Remington painting in my office. It's, it's not a real painting. Frederick Remington painting, paintings are in museums. Frederick Remington is one of a cowboy, one of two cowboy artists that I fell in love with years ago. Charlie Russell is another one. Frederick, this Frederick Remington painting is really just a canvas uh, print that has brush strokes on it that makes it kind of look like a painting, but it's a good size picture in my office that I have studied over the years. Christy gave it to me probably over 10 years ago when we were living in Fort Worth. And I fell in love with the painting because of the color choices, they're they're just so unusual. You look at some of the little splotches and little spots in the picture and sections in the picture that you know because you see the picture full scale, You know what it is, but if you really just isolate it in on a color or a little square inch, you would look at a color choice or a perspective choice and say, man, that just doesn't even make sense. Purple grass or orange horse, things like that, that when you're looking in really close, they're hard to make sense of and they don't seem to quite fit. But when you pan out in the macro, they make brilliant sense. And the paintings are captivating because of those choices. I realize that we as a church in a large, okay, I'd say in large sense, move in the micro. We move through books of the Bible, usually, not exclusively, but books of the Bible, maybe a verse at a time. We've had a sermon on a word So, there's nothing wrong with looking at the micro and the little bitty splotches and the little bitty square inches, but sometimes it's nice to pan out and look at the macro because you really get an appreciation for how those things fit. This morning's message is a macro message. We're going to pan out to look at a part of the story of the gospel and the story of redemption that is really, really delightful. It's a big picture message. And something that makes it a little bit complicated is that it's a big picture message that has to do with something that we have no reference for. It has to do with the concept of a monarchy. Most of you know, but we have you know kids in here and others that may not know. So for the sake of being very clear, very simple, a monarchy is a form of government that's led by a king or a queen, ruled, you could say. It makes for difficult preaching referring to something that we don't understand, that we don't have really any reference for beyond maybe a movie or a book that we've read. We really have no reference for the highs and lows of being led by a king or queen. We do know that a monarchy can't be all too good since our country was founded by people who'd had enough of one. So really, if there is is any taste of a monarchy for a bunch of Americans, it's distaste, product of us being here in the United States of America. Well, today, though, we're going to try and climb into the hearts and the minds of Israel when they asked for a king, when they got what they asked for, and then when they rode the roller coaster of the monarchy for four or 500 years, depending on if you're talking about Judah or Israel. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. The sermon, as you're turning there, I'll tell you, it has sort of two parts. The first two-thirds of the sermon, I would say content-wise and time-wise, are going to be developing what I just said. The people of God, the nation of Israel, ask for a king, they get what they've asked for, and how that goes. And the last third of the sermon is going to deal with what God did about it. Okay, and I'll let you know when that transition takes place. I'm making a point this morning. Really, I'll tell you this. I'm making a point in 2014 to be more concise in my preaching, even from Hebrews, which we should always, every preacher that stands in this pulpit should be about the work of making truth plain. So my goal in 2014 is to be concise. It may mean shorter. I'm not making any promises, but more, I would say, more packaged where you can travel with it, where what was engaged on Sunday would travel to the cubicle or the the work site or the car or the kitchen and everywhere in between. That's my goal for this, this year. So something I'm mindful of in this sermon this morning is I want to be thorough, but I don't want to be exhaustive. So I think I've found the real sweet spot in there. So we'll see. And I'm I'm glad they turned the lights down because I can't see your body language too much. So I'm going to press on. And um, like I said, just at least so you know, I don't want to be exhausted this morning, but I do want to be thorough. This is a very, very important macro view this morning that will impact your understanding of the micro. 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel asks for a king, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Let me kind of give you a little context here where we are in the story. God called Abraham, then Abram, to go to a land he had never seen, to go to the land of Canaan, to become a people there. He became a people. He has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, uh, Isaac has... um, Joseph. Joseph has Jacob and Esau. And then you may know the story. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. The whole people group ends up in Egypt, in Goshen, and becomes quite prolific. And then they find their way of, through the Exodus, through the mighty acts of judgment that were called the plagues in the Exodus. They find their way to the promised land via 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness becomes one big graveyard as the first generation dies, and then the second generation goes on into the promised land, crosses the Jordan over dry ground, just like they did over the Red Sea. And then there's the time of the conquest as Joshua leads the conquest, and then comes the time of the judges. You want to figure out where things kind of fit. We're on the tail end of the judges. And I just read right here about the names of the final two judges that happened to be Samuel's sons. Samuel was a prophet. So the last two judges of Israel were Joel and Abijah. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Yet another example of a good guy that has messed up sons. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. They didn't even beat around the bush. You're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Maybe he was displeased because it was really an indictment against the poor performance of his sons. I think there's more to it than that, and we see what unfolds here in these next few verses. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Israel asks for a king, various reasons involved in that. Likely there's some reason having to do with the failings of the judges. The period of the judges did not go well. There might be a good judge, then there might be a crummy judge. Judges alone might be good reason enough, with Joel and Abijah leading as a judge but it appears there's some other reasons they've asked for a king so they can have someone that will make them like their neighbors. They're looking at the Canaanites or the Philistines or the Hittites or the Jebusites. They all have kings. We wanna be like our neighbors and have a king. We wanna have somebody we can look to, somebody that we can touch and feel, someone that we can see, someone that we can laud because it's not easy to follow an invisible king. It requires something that these people have very little of faith so we want to have a king that we can see and touch there's another reason that they wanted a king that, to, that you can look over in verse 20 that we may also be like all the nations we've already seen that and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles we want somebody that could go out in shiny armor with a nice chariot big sword and go out there and get the job done. Let's see what Samuel has to say about that going back to verse 10. Samuel's gonna do exactly what God told him to do and he's gonna warn the people with these words. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war, the equipment of his chariots. he you will know, take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, the vineyards, the olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel makes that promise. The Lord will not answer you in that day. What you're gonna see in a few minutes is the nation of Israel experienced four or 500 years of absolute darkness as a result of what they asked for in a king, leading right up to the time that Christ was born. Silence. You will cry out to this God, but you will not hear from him because he will not answer you in that day. Now, Samuel seems pretty emphatic about how this thing's going to go. He seems pretty confident about this, how this thing's going to go with the king, with this thing they've asked for. Let's look at chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 and see if Samuel was off base or if he's on the money. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, you can imagine how Samuel's feeling at this point. Samuel said, hey, this thing's going to go really bad. You don't want a king. This is an affront to God. This is going to go south, I promise you. And God says, okay, you're going to call the tall, dark, handsome guy. And Samuel's thinking to himself, likely be thinking, I wish you could have picked an ugly goober at least. You picked a tall, dark, handsome guy. Oh, and he's rich. So right now, Samuel's looking a little bit overbaked. Samuel, you kind of overdid this a little bit because look who we've got, the tall, dark, handsome guy that's rich. Look over at chapter 10. We're gonna see a couple things that happen to Samuel that might make us think and lead us to think that things are really gonna go well with Samuel. Chapter 10, verse six. Samuel is anointing Saul king and he's sharing with Saul some things that are going to happen to him. In verse six, he says, the spirit of the Lord will rush on you and you will prophesy with them, these prophets, and be turned into another man. In the margin of my Bible, I have... Shazam, I wrote that, it wasn't in there, ESV didn't put, Shazam, he turned into another man. He's tall, dark, handsome, and rich, and now Shazam, he's like Superman. And let's see what happens in verse nine. He turned back to leave Samuel. God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed on him, and he prophesied among them. Shazam, sure enough. He's tall, dark, and handsome, and rich. He has a new heart from God, and he has the spirit on him. (laughs) Samuel, you were a little overbaked on this because this is really going well. Look what happens next. He defeats the Ammonites in that whole chapter, chapter 9. He defeats the Ammonites in a pretty amazing way. Things continue to look like they're going well, but then there's chapter 13. Look at chapter 13, starting in verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore and multitude, they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, I put a note in my Bible, we're in a tight spot. We're in a a tight spot. The people are hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They go on AWOL. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, when Samuel said, that's when I'm gonna come, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. He offered the burnt offering. The burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. The timing is just beautiful. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Oh, hey, Samuel. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, Samuel, Samuel, I offered the burnt offering, but it wasn't easy. I forced myself. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. I thought, man, that sounds so familiar. You have eaten of the tree I told you not to eat from. And your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. Man, things go south for Samuel at chapter 8, for Saul at chapter 8, at chapter 13, and then from there they go downhill. There are various accounts of what actually unfolds, some that are more detailed than other, but the details in this book alone in 1 Samuel is that he goes on to make a very rash vow that was unwise. He makes a monument for himself. He consults a medium. He obeys God partially, which is not obedience at all. And then he goes hunting down David To kill him. And then in chapter 15, it says, The Lord rejects Saul. Now, things aren't going too well with the first guy out of the chute. Samuel made some predictions, and Samuel's one for one right now. Let's see how number two goes. Number two is going to be a Cinderella story. David has a great start, defeats Goliath. You know, he comes out of left field. Who's this little scrubby kid? He's a pretty amazing guy, turns out to be quite the warrior. He has a great start. A really great pre-mid and then mid-range things go bad and they go south with Bathsheba and Uriah. And then it's hard to even say that he has a bad finish. I would say his finish should be more characterized by damage control. So things didn't go well with Saul. Good start, bad finish. Things didn't go well with David. Great start. Good mid, horrible late mid, damage control finish. Maybe Solomon will work out. Solomon has a great start. He asked for wisdom in the beginning. He asked for the thing that just shows that he's almost like he had it already. He asked for wisdom, has a good start, but then he has a horrible finish. The scripture says that Solomon loved many foreign women and that ended up being his downfall. So Saul, or Samuel's three for three. Then there's Rehoboam. You may remember the story of Rehoboam. The wise counselors say, Rehoboam, you need to go easier on the people than your father did, and the people will love you. They will do whatever they, whatever, will go follow you wherever you lead them. And Rehoboam consulted his high school buds, I guess. He said, nah, I think I'm going to be harder than my dad. And the kingdom is split in two. Now, I have a little note here in my, in my notes. there, I was thinking about the commercial, the double met commercial when I was a kid. This is the, you know, double your pleasure, double your fun. This is double the sin here. Because as if things aren't bad enough with one king, now there's two kings for the people of God. There's Israel and there's Judah, the northern and southern kingdom. And they're both going really bad. The southern kingdom, or let's start with the northern kingdom, Israel. Jeroboam ends up being the first king of the, of the northern kingdom, Israel. And here's what's said about Jeroboam. He made two golden calves. This is the first thing he does. He becomes king of the northern kingdom. He makes two golden calves. And here's what he said, as if that's not ridiculous enough. He says, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, listen to what else he says. Your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. (laughs) What? What? Oh, I don't remember that part of the story, Jeroboam, but I do remember the knuckleheads that did make the golden calf that said the same and what happened to them at the base of Mount Sinai. So the first king of Israel is characteristic and really representative of the rest of the kings of Israel for the next 400 years or so, 350 years. Man, it is bad king, bad king, bad king. Nadab, Basha, Basha, Eli, Zimri, Omri, who's really bad. Ahab, who's the worst, Ahaziah, Jehu, Jeroboam II, Zachariah, Shalom, Menahem, Pekahiah, Pekah, and then exile in Israel in Assyria beginning about 740 BC. If we look at Israel alone, things are pretty bad. Samuel is, I don't know, 20 for 20 if we only look at Israel. Let's look at Judah. Rehoboam, I said he was the first king once the kingdom was split. Rehoboam is is Solomon's son. Here's what's said about Rehoboam. Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, at Rehoboam's leadership. Listen to what it says. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, pillars, pillars, and Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And oh, by the way, there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. Wow. The high places referred to here are the Canaanites, places where they worshiped pagan gods. That sometimes uh, part of that sacrifice was sacrificing children. So this is how far they've gone, just four, four kings into it. Rehoboam is building high places like his neighbors. He's building Asherim poles, and Asherim, Asherah, was these cult objects that were related to the worship of the fertility goddess Asherah. Hence, the male cult prostitutes. Man, you really think about it; it ought to blow your mind. These are the kings of Israel. These are the kings of Judah. Rehoboam's son, Abijam, he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. Asa, you see some good things in Asa, some good things in Jehoshaphat. Jehoram is bad, Ah Ahaziah is bad, Athaliah is really bad, Joash, mostly good, Amaziah, mostly good, Uzziah, good, sorta, Jotham, good, sorta, Ahaz, wicked, vile, wicked, Hezekiah, really the best of the the southern batch. Manasseh, his own son, is the worst of the southern batch. Amon the worst, along with Manasseh, Josiah's pretty good, Jehoahaz bad, Jehoiakim wicked, Jehoiachin bad, Zedekiah bad, and then they go into exile in Babylon. Listen to this little excerpt at the end of Second Chronicles. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. His son, Jehoiachin, was eight eight years old when he became, became king. He reigned three months and 10 days in Jerusalem and in just those wee three months and 10 days, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests, the people likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations and they polluted the house of the Lord that he made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. And the scripture says, until there was no remedy. Next is the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. And Judah goes into exile into Babylon. And then they spend this next period between 587 BC, really, and the coming of Christ in a very, very, very dark period. Man. I was reading that and I was thinking, man, I can just imagine what life was like for the Israelite. I mean, they asked for a king. They want to be like their neighbors. They got what they asked for. They wanted a guy to go out there and fight their battles somebody they could see and touch and feel and hear. And all of Samuel's predictions come come true. And then some... Samuel's predictions really were pretty tame compared to what actually unfolded. Building of high places, worshiping foreign gods, golden calves, ashram poles. What a heartbreaking story if you really look at it in the macro. And here's what makes it even really sadder for me. is thinking if by chance you actually lived during the period of Hezekiah or Josiah, which are a couple of really good kings of Judah... You're gonna see chinks in their armor. You're gonna see failings. But ultimately, even if they are really pretty good, they ended up dying. Josiah dies in battle. They end up dying. So even if you happen to have a good king, homeboy's gonna die, and then it's a crapshoot of whether you're gonna get Manasseh or not. Who's gonna be next? It's gonna be his son, so maybe he'll be... Something like his dad. Now, you got Manasseh. Hezekiah and then Manasseh? Man, what a serious roller coaster for the people of God. And then they spent four to five hundred years in darkness and silence and oppression under Assyria, under Persia, and then eventually under Rome. If you want to get a sense what this period was like, just do a little research on it. Look up, look up the Maccabees. Look up the Maccabean revolt. It's the Scottish clan in Israel. It's a, it's a joke. There's really no Scottish clan in Israel. Look up the Maccabees and read about them on your own, and you'll get a sense of the darkness and the heartbreak of this period before Christ came. Something that occurred to me over Christmas, we were visiting family in um, Austin and went to a Christmas Eve service with some of Christie's family and uh, the guy was reading the Christmas story or the, the birth, you know, the Luke version. And something hit me square in the face as he's reading that version. I thought, man, the kings were so bad leading right up to the, to the exiles. And then realizing that didn't stop right up to the birth of Christ. Look at Herod Herod was as foul as the rest of them. Now, Herod was, Herod was more a sort of a figurehead. He wasn't a real king because Rome was really the empire. Israel was sort of a province of the Roman Empire. And Herod's sort of a figurehead, but he's sort of representative of just the rest. And I thought, how interesting. Herod wanted to kill Jesus. It sounded a lot like Saul offering the wrong sacrifice trying to offer the sacrifice on his own when that job belonged to somebody else. Herod, you can't kill Jesus. That's the high priest's job. That's not for you to do. Caiaphas is gonna do that. Man, these guys are in a fix. They wanted a king and they got kings in spades and it did not go well. Every one of them should have made, and I think in some made them, pine for a good and true king, for a remedy of some sort. I can't imagine they didn't pine for one who will be faithful to the end and will have no end. One who will be great and one who will be faithful and won't die. That's the only real solution. I thought about this how many hundreds of years worth of story. It's about 300 years worth of a monarchy for the northern kingdom. About 500 years or so of monarchy in the southern kingdom in Judah. I thought, man, God did something really cool in that. He gave them what they asked for and what they asked for was wicked. You just almost see him removing his hand. Okay, I'm gonna let you do that. And he turned lemons to lemonade. What he did in this people, what he did in the nation of Israel, what he's done in us if we climb into this story is we can feel the darkness. We can feel the word I want you to hear right now is lack. He let them develop lack. For without lack, there's no such thing as hope. He's fostering hope in them by letting them see one right after another, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, oh, dead king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, mediocre king, oh, dead king. Mm. One right after another, developing lack so that it would cultivate hope so that they would be looking forward to his remedy. So here we sit, 400 or 500 years of severe darkness after the exile, without a king, without a real king, Instead, there's Persian, Roman governors, and the king project has gone terribly bad. I thought about this. One remedy to their problem might be, if we think about if we think like an American, one remedy when the monarchy thing isn't going well is you can just move and start a whole new country. Right? I mean, we've got to admit that's, that's a remedy. It may not be a good remedy, but that's our solution. That's what we did a few hundred years ago. While democracy, though, is preferable to a monarchy, I wouldn't call it salvation, would you? <laughs> you feel like we're walking in salvation right now? You feel like we're walking in a real remedy for a monarchy here in the United States? And I, it's not anti-American comments. I'm an American. I love being American. I'm thankful that we grew up here. I've worn a flag on my shoulder, carried an M16. I'm go America. But man, I don't think it's true salvation. I wouldn't call it the perfect remedy. What might be the perfect remedy for the problems of a monarchy is a whole new king. A truly righteous king that can't be wooed like Solomon was. One that doesn't stay home from the battle like David did. One who doesn't sin with the bathing rooftop beauty one that doesn't become intoxicated with power, one that doesn't build high places, one that doesn't build golden calves, one that doesn't erect asher and poles, one who can't be bought, one who isn't afraid, one who does what he says he'll do, one to, whose, to whom's reign does not end, and one that doesn't leave the people feeling like, well, it's a crapshoot, who's next? Man, that's a real remedy. Turn to the book of Luke, second part of the sermon. Or the last third of the sermon. I want to encourage you, something that happened for me over my sabbatical that I treasure, that in addition to some really sweet time with my family, some really neat experiences, right up there in the top three things that I had a chance to appreciate that happened during the sabbatical would be a new way of reading the Gospels. In some ways, the Gospels can become, and unfortunately they have become for a lot of folks, illustrations when we're preaching the real meat from Paul. Get some Pauline theology and we illustrate it with maybe one of Jesus' sermons or Jesus' narratives an encounter with somebody, a blind guy or whatever, a beggar. And man, the Gospels are so much more than that. I want to encourage you to read the Gospels with a new set of eyes, to read them like you would read the Chronicles of a King. A whole new approach to the Gospel that will blow your mind. I will say this, that what's been developed so far in the story of Israel and the story of this sermon has been a darkness. The king project hasn't gone well, right? We would acknowledge that. Israel would acknowledge that. But the good news is, a king is born. Reading the gospels with a new set of eyes, a solution, a real remedy to something he says, there's no remedy, yep, turns out there is. You weren't mistaken there. He's pointing toward the hope that they should have in this new and righteous king. In Luke chapter one, verse 26, Gabriel, meets with Mary. And in verse 32, he says, he speaks of this child. It started in verse 31, actually, he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Man, you're likely, you're tracking there. That sounds very familiar. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David if you pan out a little bit from this little patch that you likely have heard your entire life, you like, oh, I'm not really sure what that means. I kind of know what it means. When you pan out, you begin to see it in focus and in context and you go, oh, he's gonna get the throne now. This is gonna be the answer to this dark four 500 year problem. You could say thousand year problem since they first asked for a king. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He won't die in battle. He won't get TB and die. He won't get some weird fever and die. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. The message to Mary right out of the chute in the gospels is you're going to carry, you're going to deliver, you're going to raise a king and his name is Jesus. Man, when you read that in that context, oh, that's some good medicine right there. You can feel the ache with the nation of Israel. That's good medicine. A king is born. Turn over to the next page, chapter two. There are three people that I feel like in some ways are representative or should have been representative of the nation of Israel and you're about to meet all three of them. Just short little excerpts. Here's the first of the three and my favorite of the three, a man named Simeon. Chapter two, beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what's said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man is righteous and devout and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. We'll come back to that in a minute. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, just be there in this moment. Imagine being this new mom and dad and seeing this old fella, this old devout fella, grab up Jesus like he's been waiting for him his entire life. He's been making this trip to this temple every single day looking for this child. He grabs him up in his arms. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon is representative of the the condition of the nation of Israel. They are pining for a king. They're waiting for the word there is consolation of Israel. You can probably figure out what that word means. Break it down, console. If you console a child, what are you doing? You're comforting the child. That's what that word means. In the Greek, it's periclesis. It's where we get the word for the Holy Spirit, the comforter. Simeon is waiting for comfort to come to Israel. Man, there is a real, real, real treasure here in the connection to this concept of comfort and the long-awaited king. It could be a whole nother sermon. I'm gonna send you on a little family project. Read through the book of Isaiah, especially chapter 49, and read the connection of comfort to Israel that's promised eventually. And see, God says, man, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna give you comfort because I'm gonna be your king again. And that is answered in Christ. Simeon, man, he's looking for it. He's waiting for the comfort, the consolation of Israel. Here's the next picture. She's on the next page in my Bible, beginning in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, The daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. You're gonna see that in Isaiah 49 as well. The comfort of and redemption of Israel in this long-awaited king. Simeon is waiting for him. Anna is waiting for him. Israel is waiting for him. As we climb into the story, we're waiting for him. We need an answer to the king project. He comes in the Christ child. Comfort and redemption. Redemption. The third one is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. I'll just read the passage to you. It's very brief. It's a few pages later in a different chapter. Chapter 23, verses 50 and 51. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Man, these three guys... A couple of guys and a gal, Simeon, Anna, and Joseph are representative of a country, a nation, a people that is looking for a solution to the king project. As Joseph is burying Jesus, I wonder if he's thinking, well, I thought he was the answer. But here I am burying him. He's looking for a kingdom, and I bet he's pining for this reality that Israel needs a new and righteous king. Israel is waiting for the comfort and redemption, a long awaited king. Matthew chapter 2, I like right out of the shoot in the Gospels. Here's yet another picture. Listen to this passage now with this context. Of the King Project in the background. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Is this starting to make a little sense now? See these little data points that connect in context. I'm like, okay, well, that now makes sense. The king of the Jews has been born, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he's troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of Israel, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least of the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When you read the Gospels in light of this king project, man, it will come to life. It will come to life. You'll see things in a way that you've never seen them before. You're gonna see this king and this kingdom references that are all over our New Testaments and especially in the Gospels and they begin, begin to make sense. In John chapter one, Nathaniel sees Jesus. Actually, Jesus sees him first. Nathaniel comes out to Jesus and what does he say of Jesus? He, say he recognizes him first as the son of God and the king Of Israel. Maybe Nathanael's with Anna and Simeon and Joseph of Arimathea, and he's looking for the kingdom of heaven because he sees Jesus and he says, There he is, the king of Israel, right there. John chapter 6, the people after he feeds the multitudes, what do they want to do? They want to make him king. Man, it's the wrong time and place. But Israel's looking for a king. In John chapter 12, he enters Jerusalem like a king with great fanfare, with the crowds lauding him. Like his coronation, he enters Jerusalem. In John chapter 18, throughout John chapter 18, these trials that he goes through with Pilate, this conversation that is threaded throughout these trials, this conversation that has to do with, well, are you the king or not? That's what's unfolding here in the Gospels is the birth and the coronation and the crowning of the king. The long-awaited answer to this 1,000-year-old king project. He's mocked as a king. He's dressed in purple with a crown on his head and with an inscription over his head saying, King of the Jews. And in his final moments, before he says it's finished, a thief looks over at him and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Man, this changes everything. It doesn't disassemble for me the very individualistic realities of the gospel that my sins are paid for through Christ. It doesn't diminish that to me, for me at all and I don't want it to diminish that in you at all but it should supplement that with this concept that it's bigger than just you. Man, Israel was pining for a king. The world needed a true and righteous king, and that king is and was, was and is seated and reigning and ruling Jesus. Man, it will supplement your understanding of the gospel as you realize that you are part of a monarchy, as you realize that you have a king. Man, do you think like Nathaniel seeing Jesus as the Son of God and the King of the new Israel, the church? Your king? Do you see Jesus and say, You're my king? Are you like Simeon swooping him up every day, enjoying him? Look what he is. Salvation has come to Ben to the McGraws, to Crosspoint Fellowship, to the world. Not just Ben. It will round you out. It will give you a bigger understanding of what's going on. You macro that picture and you see some things that are really beautiful. Are you like Anna? Swooping up this child and telling others about the redemption that came to Israel and the new Israel in the world through this child. Man, I encourage you to start reading the gospels like you read first and second kings or first and second chronicles. It might go something like this. Jesus was 33 years old when he began to reign and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed the high places, cleansed the temple, fulfilled the law, vanquished the enemy. He did what we asked for, he got out in front and fought our battle for us. And he continues to remove the high places in your marriages, in your lives, in your families. For he reigns and he rules to this very day, he didn't die. Now change the way you read your Bibles. Man, what a great king of heaven. Let me pray. High King of Heaven, we praise you and enjoy you and worship you right now. We climb into this thousand year developing darkness and the four and five hundred year worth of absolute silence and darkness with Israel this morning. And we grab up the Christ child with Simeon and we call him our King. We celebrate with Jerusalem as he enters Jerusalem and makes his way to his crowning on a cross. We celebrate as the new Israel that he vanquished the enemy. He got out in front and fought a battle that we couldn't fight. defeated an enemy that we couldn't defeat. You know, we worship him, we enjoy him. We give him our allegiance. We give him our lives as citizens and stewards of the kingdom. And we enjoy him this morning. So thankful for the macro, for the big picture story. It helps us see and enjoy our high King of heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen.